If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. Our text this morning, appropriately enough for a Christmas Lord's Day, is Luke chapter 2, the first 20 verses. Hear now the very Word of God. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered there with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. As it had been told them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord we ask this morning. That you would bring your word to us. That by the power of your spirit it would take deep root in our hearts. That we would not merely listen to it but that we would truly hear that the word would take deep root in our hearts and that we would be changed. Lord, 
allow us to hear what you would tell us in this Christmas story. Do not allow our presuppositions, our preferences, and what we have thought to get in the way. But bring to us, O Lord, the truth of your gospel. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning, as you may have noticed, we are taking a brief break from the Gospel of John. This Christmas, we're going to see how God began His plan of redeeming a people for Himself. From eternity past, God planned to save sinners. And that plan broke into time. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, broke into the world. Luke records for us the story of the birth of the Savior. It is not a feel-good story. It is a glorious declaration of how far God will go to save sinners like you and me. And so as we begin looking at this text... The first thing that I would like us to see and be struck by is the humble birth of our Savior. That our Savior was born in a humble estate. And then next we will move on to a heavenly announcement as the angels come and declare the glory of God revealed in the Savior. And then finally we will see what the shepherds did in response. And the call to you and to me to go out heralding the Savior. A humble birth, a heavenly announcement, and heralding the Savior. Let's begin then by looking at Christ's humble birth. Luke begins our story by giving us context for the story. You will notice he does not begin, the first verse is not the account of the actual birth of Christ. It is setting the stage for this. And more than the stage immediately in Bethlehem, this is the stage for the entirety of the world. And Luke does this for a reason. Because by showing us the birth of Christ in the context and contrast to the world, Luke tells us just how radical God's action is. But there's another thing he wants us to see. By showing us the world at the time of Jesus' birth, Luke opens up a window and shows us our own world. A world that is filled with self-importance. A world that thinks that it knows everything, that it can do anything it wants, that it doesn't need God. And Luke shows us the vanity of that. It begins by telling us that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now as you hear that, don't just nod your head and say, well of course, of course, that's the Christmas story. There's a census, I'm not even really sure what a census is, but there's a census and and that's the mechanism to get Mary on the donkey and from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Go ahead pastor, get on with the story. No, no. I'm not going to do that because I want you to see something. First, who is the one who calls for the census? Well, Luke tells us his name is Caesar Augustus, only it isn't. 
That's not his name. His name was Octavian. He had taken on these two names, these honorifics, these titles, to let the empire and the world, and presumably you, know how important he is. He's Octavian, and he is now the emperor of Rome, and he takes his first title from his patriarch, Caesar, Julius Caesar, reminding the world that he also is a great conqueror, that he also is above all other men. But that was not enough for him. You see, the Roman Senate then declared that they would give him a second title, the title of Augustus, which means most exalted. And you could just imagine when they came to Octavian and said, we think you should take the name most exalted. I think the only question is, did he once or twice say, oh, no, 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 that, I don't need that title. Well, if you insist, if you insist, I'll be the most exalted one. Rome, at the time, is running the known world. All that we would think about in the known world in this time of northern Africa, all of Europe, most of the Middle East is under Roman rule. Rome has its stamp on everything, literally. All of the money is Roman money. All of the roads to go from one place to the other are Roman roads. And Rome was very proud of their politics, of their industry, and of their might. Now, if we stop and think about that for a moment, that's what everyone in the world now longs for. It's what drives America, isn't it? That we'd be first in the world. That no one could tell us no. That we could do whatever we want. It's what drives China. It's what drives Russia. It's what drives Africa. It's what drives Brazil. Every nation wants to be in control. And not even just nations. Cities want to be the best of cities. Neighborhoods want to be the greatest neighborhoods. And even families want to be known as the most powerful, the most important families. It is bound up in who we are. And Luke gives us that picture of that by showing us Rome. Well, Rome decided to conduct a census. And this census was not like the modern census that we experience here in America. Perhaps you participated in the last census. And maybe you got something in the mail or a form over the internet that you had to check some boxes and send off somewhere into the ether so that your family could be counted among the people in Katy, the people in Houston, the people in Texas. But that's not what Rome was doing here. Rome was going out to the people. Caesar Augustus had decreed that every single person in the empire be numbered. For two main reasons. First, he wanted to glory in knowing just how many people he ruled over. But secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, he wanted money from every single one of them. Now, could you imagine what that would be like if the census taker came and rang your doorbell and took the number of people in your house and before you could shut the door, an IRS agent was right behind him, hand out, saying, come on. Pay up. No, you don't get to wait till April 15th to fill out a form. Let's go. And if you don't pay up, I'm coming in and taking things. It's the way for Rome to show its power. 
And because of this, Joseph, whose family was from the town of Bethlehem, had to travel to Bethlehem to be counted. You see, Caesar Augustus wanted a perfectly accurate count. And so he told people they had to go back to the place of their family where they were from so that no one would be missed. Think about all of the disruption in all of the world because of this. Some of you have seen this in industry. It's those periods of time in some of our oil companies in which all work stops because everyone has to determine if they can remain in their job or if they'll be given a new job. And it always amazes me because nothing gets done during those periods of times. Everyone's jockeying for jobs. Now imagine it's not just a company, but it's the whole world. The whole world is put on pause. But there's an irony here. It's an irony from God. While the world is putting forth bombastic decrees, while the world is declaring how important it is, it's God who's at work. Quietly. Even privately. God is using Augustus. The most powerful man in all of the world is a pawn in the hands of the sovereign God. Because you see, God is using Augustus and using this census to keep his promise found in his word. Because you see, God had promised that the Savior would come, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Hundreds of years earlier, as recorded in the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Do you see what God is doing here? God keeps his promise by taking control of an empire. That's the power of God. Well, if the world has a sense of its self-importance, we see the king come. Humbly and unnoticed. Joseph and Mary make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It is a trip made with hardship, a hardship of travel. Any of you ladies who have been pregnant and given birth know how difficult travel is. Now, we don't know the details that our mind fills in. We don't know, for example, Luke doesn't tell us if Mary rode on a donkey they don't say how many days it took for the trip to be made. But any woman who has given birth can tell you that even riding in a comfortable luxury car at eight and a half months of pregnancy is not an enjoyable experience. And so there's a hardship here. Joseph and Mary make the trip to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, we are told that there is, in verse 7, no place for them in the inn. Now, I want you to see the text here and not to let sentimentality and other stories fill in the gaps. It doesn't say that Joseph and Mary were too poor and so therefore they couldn't afford a place to stay. It doesn't say that there was a mean, rotten innkeeper at the door who said, get out. We don't want your kind here. No, actually, even the word for in here 
could better be translated a guest room. It's not a Motel 6 even, let alone a Hyatt or a Hilton. No, it really represents a room, literally. A floor on which people would flop down and sleep. And there literally was no room on the floor for them to lay. That's what Luke is telling us. And so they have to go into an outer building. Often rooms, inns of this type, would have a place for people to stay and a place for animals to stay because people would bring their animals, especially as they traveled. Mules, donkeys, horses. And so from the text we see that there's no room at the inn and so they have to go to an outer building, very likely, where not only they stay, but Mary will give birth. Think of how humble and ordinary this is. I want you to stop and think for just a moment how luxurious your home is. Now, before you say to me, but pastor, I live in a very small apartment. And we don't have gigantic vaulted ceilings. We don't have all kinds of rooms. We don't have five and a half bathrooms. Let me ask you this question. Do you have running water? Do you have electricity? Do you have heat? All of what you have is beyond what the king had. We live in luxury compared to kings. And then especially the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born in a humble place. And so the question we might ask is, why such a birth at this place and this time? Luke tells us in verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, you have to understand that Luke uses this word, came, here. It's a word that is often translated to be fulfilled or to be filled. So he's not just saying, it just so happened that Mary went into labor. Now, again, those of you that have children know what that's like. When in our family, time was ready for our children to be born, I kept reminding my wife to tell me exactly how far apart her contractions were, because I had one job. We're not going to have the baby in the car. We need to make it to the hospital. And you don't know when that's going to happen. And so you have to take every measure you can to know when it will just come about. But that's not what Luke's saying here. He's not just saying it just happened that Jesus was born. He's saying the time was fulfilled. This is intentional. This is purposeful. This is not just a wonder that we can gaze upon. The purpose of God is here. And this birth is a birth for us. God's purpose in sending the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son's purpose in being born, the Spirit's purpose in overshadowing Mary was so that we might know salvation. This birth is for us. And when we stop and think about that, it should remind us of how much we need a Savior of the depth of our sin. You see, it is tempting for us as we hear the Christmas story to insert ourselves in and to give us a prominent and blessed place. We think if we were there in Bethlehem, oh, we would rock the baby Jesus to sleep. 
We would sing songs to him. We would make sure he's covered up. We would encourage Mary. We would talk with Joseph. We would do all of the best of things. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not what we would be doing. If you and I were there, we would be saying, this place is foul smelling. And and what is this pregnant woman doing traveling? And will the baby ever be still? And what is going on here? Why is Joseph moving his family all this distance? You see, when we investigate the depths of our hearts, we see how much we need a Savior. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is the heavenly announcement. You see, after the Lord Jesus Christ was born, in verse 8 we see, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, what I want you to see Luke telling you is that heaven cannot contain itself. The Lord Jesus Christ may have been born in a humble place, in humble circumstances. But heaven breaks forth in praise and in song. When Jesus was born, the world, with all of its self-importance, didn't notice at all. But the angels know better. You see, they come forth... And they come to these shepherds, lowly shepherds. Why do they do this? I think if we were to design, again, the Christmas story, we would have the angels come to the leaders of the world, to come to Herod, to come to the governor, to come to the emperor. Because after all, it's the powerful who can actually fix things. Why not announce it to them? Why would you come to a group of shepherds out under the stars, out in the fields. You see, the shepherds are not the best of society. Now, they're not outcasts, but they're simple folk. And they would have been tired. They would have been keeping their flocks all the day long, and they would have been resting out in the open under the stars. And then all of a sudden, Majestic angels appear. The way Luke describes this, there is a sudden surprise in the word appeared. And we see this because they're filled with great fear. Now, perhaps you've experienced this. This happens to me quite often. I will be doing something, working on something, engrossed in it. And the great culprits are often my wife, or a fellow staff member. They will come to the door of where I am and then get my attention. And I will try not to physically jump out of my seat because I'm so shocked. Has that happened to you? Maybe you've been leaning over the sink washing dishes and someone calls your name and calls your name and you don't respond and they tap you on the shoulder and you're frightened. Well, that's what we see here with the shepherds. The angels just appear. They're not expecting this. They have no reason to think this is what's going to happen. And this is, again, a contrast to the way the world is asleep at the birth of Jesus. 
And so the angels come and they bear a message. And the message that they bring to the shepherds is a message that you and I need to hear each and every day. They say in verse 10, fear not. Have you ever noticed how often in the Bible God and his angels say, fear not? You know, we are a fearful people. We know we're not in control. We are afraid of our circumstances, of our surroundings, of our future. But God breaks into our world, and when he does, he declares that we have nothing to be afraid of. And that is such an encouraging statement, because in the face of God, it would appear we have everything to be afraid of. Think of something else that you see in the Bible over and over again. When people come face to face with the living God, they throw themselves on their face as if they're dead. They're petrified before a holy and perfect God. And God always says, fear not. It's a reminder of how holy God is and how unholy we are. But the message is fear not because there is good news. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. (coughs) Now, look at what the angel says. Fear not and then behold. Behold is ancient Bible language for, hey, listen up. Something important is coming here. And what is important is coming here is I bring you good news of great joy. And that words, those words, good news, remind us of the gospel. The gospel is good news. But Luke does something interesting here for us in the way he recounts the angel's statement. When we think of the gospel, we think of a noun. We think of something that has content. We think of something that we are to give to someone else. Almost something that has properties. But in this text here, the good news is not a noun. It's a verb. The angel is literally saying, I am gospeling you. I am bringing you the good news. It's not something that is apart from you. It's not something you can stand off and observe. The gospel comes to you. The good news is that a Savior is born. And that is good news. There is no better news than that news. I could give you an assignment... To spend the rest of the day, this Christmas, sitting in these chairs, trying to think of the best news that you could think of. Don't worry, kids, I won't. I'll let you get home. But you would never come up with better news than this. That a Savior is born. And that good news is cause for great joy, the angel says. It is great joy that will be for all the people. And once again, we are reminded that this is not merely a warm, sentimental story. This is not a happy ending movie. This is God keeping his promise. God keeping his covenant from all the way back in the Old Testament. 
The covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant that he made with Moses. The covenant that he made with David. The covenant that he made at the fall in Genesis 3.15. He is keeping his promise that he will redeem the people. Now, do you see the odd phrase here? All the people. We would not normally say that. We would normally say all people. Right? But that's not what the angel says. That's not what Luke reports. He reports all the people. There's a definite article here. And that's because there is a people that God has made that promise to. There is a people who are to receive redemption by faith in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that that people is each and every one who has the faith of Abraham. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So if you are hearing this Christmas story this morning, whether it's fresh or whether it's tried and true, remember that you can be a part of the people. And the only thing that you need to do is believe. You can be humble. You can be great. You can be young. You can be old. This promise of the Savior is to all the people. And this gives us the real meaning of Christmas. That God keeps his promise. And that in the Savior, we will never be separated from him. Well, who is this child who is the subject of good news and this angelic announcement? He's described in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, notice how in just one verse, Luke packs a ton of theology. The angel gives us who the child is. First, he is David's son. Over and over again, we hear David being emphasized. David is mentioned in our passage, not once, not twice, but three times, to remind us that the one who is born, the Savior, is a king. He is powerful and mighty to save. We don't need to wonder if he has ability. We don't need to wonder if he has authority. The angel himself tells us that he is the king. He is David's heir. He is the firstborn, we are reminded, in verse 7. He is a king. And he's also a savior. Knowing that he's a savior reminds us that he is a deliverer. He is the one who rescues us from death and destruction. The truth is, we need a savior. And what the angel tells us, and Luke records, is that we have one. So no matter how desperate your situation is, no matter how lost you feel you are, no matter how discouraged you are this morning, know that you have a Savior by faith. Because you see, the encouragement, the joy, the high, if you will, of Christmas will fade away. Later on today, all the presents will be unwrapped. The food will all be eaten. Eventually, even all of the cookies will be gone. 
and life will start up again as it was. Day after day after day. But you see, we can still have great joy in each and every day of the year. Not just December 25th, but on January 11th and February 13th and on March 2nd and on April 5th. Every day of the year we can have great joy because the good news of Christmas is for all time. It's that a Savior has come to save us from our sins, to redeem us from sorrow and pain, to do away with sickness and sadness, and to welcome us home to be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if this morning you're missing home, perhaps you're traveling, perhaps you're in a foreign country, perhaps you're away from your family, remember that you have a true home in Christ. A home that will never decay. A home that will never fall down. A home where God is. This child is David's son. This child is the Savior. But he's also, Luke tells us, Christ. Now, we get so used to hearing Jesus Christ, I think often we think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's like Smith. It distinguishes Jesus from all of the other, other Jesuses. right? Because there are other people named Jesus or Joshua. There's an entire book of Joshua. But you see, Christ is not a name, it's a title. And it means the anointed one. The one whom God has set apart. And so Luke and the angel remind us that Jesus was set apart for this work. That there's no one like Jesus. And that's a reminder that not only do we need a savior, but the only one who can be a savior is Jesus. There's no one else set apart to that work. There's no one else fit for that work. You can't find salvation in anything else. Not in any other so-called God. Not in any substance. Not in any event. No vacation. No car, no home, no amount of money, no number of children will bring you joy eternally. Only Jesus will. He is the Christ. And then finally, He is the Lord. That reminds us, even as we were reminded earlier in our worship, that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a baby in the manger. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is mighty to save. There is none who could stand against him. And so these angels come forth and they burst forth into song and they give glory to God in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, do you notice how the angels begin? Again, I think it's not how we would write the script. We would say, how glorious it is that we are saved. What a blessing that Jesus has come to us. We always want to begin with us. But that's not what the Bible does. That's not what Jesus does. The Bible begins with God. You see, the angels know God better than we do. 
And now is the most glorious demonstration of what God has done. Can you imagine the wonder of it all? The way Luke describes it. They're out in the middle of the night under the stars and the heavenly host bursts forth and the glory of God is revealed and it is like noontime. I imagine that if the shepherds had sunglasses, they would have to pull them out. They would avert their eyes because the glory of God is before them. But God is so good. Do you notice the other thing the Bible always does? It begins with the glory of God and then it overflows into blessing for us. You see, God's glory is not just out there. It comes in here. The birth of the Savior brings blessing to us. This birth is not just for the glory of God. It is for our good. It is a glory that brings peace on earth. Real peace. Not just the kind of peace that we observe in places in the world. You know, at this time right now, Rome was experiencing one of the greatest periods of peace in the history of the world. It was actually called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But the Roman peace was kept by force and military power and law. What the angels are saying here is the peace that the Savior brings comes to us and it doesn't need to be enforced it doesn't need to be written into law it's a peace that penetrates the heart it's not just peace out there it's peace in here it's a wholeness the hebrew word for peace that you might know quite well is shalom and it means wholeness total peace peace between god and man. Peace from God to his people. That's what the angels announce. Well, we've seen a humble birth, and then we've seen a heavenly announcement. And now, thirdly and briefly, we see the consequence of this as the shepherds go out heralding the Savior. At verse 15, the angels go away into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They, they are saying amongst themselves, can this possibly be true? What good news? And then one of them remembers, the angels gave us a sign. It's a sign that they said to us in verse 12, that we can go and find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. We need to go and see this so that we know that it's true. You see, this is a great story. And many people love the story of the baby Jesus. But I want to ask you, how do we know if we actually believe the story? Because there are a great many wonderful stories that we know aren't true. I hate to be the one to break the news to you if you don't know, but Snow White is not real. Neither is Cinderella. Neither are so many wondrous tales and stories. But this is the true story. It's the only true story. You know, it's said back in the last century... 
that the famous Christian author C.S. Lewis was finally convinced of the truth of who Jesus is when one of his famous friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, said to him, You believe in all kinds of stories. This is the true story. That's the difference. How do we know if we believe this story? Well, we know if we believe because we experience real faith. Do you see what these shepherds do? They don't just sit around and wonder. You know, that was a pretty neat event. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if it'll be in the Jerusalem Gazette tomorrow. Well, back to the sheep and the goats. Is that what your Bible says? I don't think so. What we see instead is they have a determination. Let us go. It's not just that they're going to go. They are determined to go. They are determined to follow God. They are taking action right now. They don't care that it's the middle of the night. They don't care that they're out in the fields. They don't care that they don't know exactly where the Savior is. They will go and they will find Him. And this is what real faith is. Real faith grips you to go and follow Jesus. And so if you are hearing this Christmas story this morning, and you are encouraged, and you are emotional, and you say, this is a wonderful story, and I just, I just love the way that this, the Bible tells this story, then the challenge to you is, will you act now and follow Jesus? Will you follow him? Will you seek him out? Will you obey him? Because that's what this story is all about. It's not something for you to observe. It's something to change who you are forever. And then we get a preview. You know, when I'm reading something and someone puts in parentheses, spoiler alert, I'm tempted to just stop so that I'm not spoiled on the story. But then I have to confess, often I just read on. This right here in verse 16 is the spoiler alert for you. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. What does that mean? It means God has told them the good news of the gospel. And they have determined to seek out the Savior. To follow God's command. And the spoiler alert is the Lord rewards them. They don't wander around in the dark for a week and a half. They don't find the wrong family. The Lord brings them right to the Savior. That's how God works. If you will trust the Lord Jesus Christ today, God will reward you. God is not about making you jump through hoops. He's not about making you fit to come to Jesus. You just come to Jesus and you are rewarded by grace. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the gift of God. And do you notice that they found them exactly as God had described to them? That's how God works. And then there's a challenge for you and me in the shepherds. They go and they see Jesus. 
And then in verse 17, it becomes very clear that they cannot keep it to themselves. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They can't keep it to themselves. They go out and they tell everyone they can find about the Savior. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you have received the gospel, the good news, someone told you. They may have told you by writing in a book. They may have told you in a conversation. They may have told you what to read in the Bible. Someone has told you. And so if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have an obligation to tell someone else. So that the good news goes forward. You see, the gospel is not just for a few. It's for all the people. And then this passage ends in a marvelous verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And that is the end of all ends. You see... The Savior comes. The good news of the gospel is that we can come to Jesus and by faith be made right with God. And then when we are right with God, we can tell others the good news of the gospel. But the end of all ends is the glory of God. It is being with God and glorifying Him and praising Him for all He has done. That's the end of the gospel. Their faith has been deepened as they trust the Lord. And their focus is not on themselves. It's on God. You see, this Christmas I want you to remember that God does what He says He's going to do. That's what Christmas is all about. And so even on this Christmas morning, I want to remind you that God says that Jesus will return one day. He will return to claim his people for himself. This is a promise of great hope to those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ. To know that we will leave behind all of pain and sorrow and sin. But it's a wake-up call this morning if you're not sure about Jesus. You see, Jesus is coming back. God will keep his promise. And the only thing that will matter on that great day is whether you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. On that great day, you will not say, oh, I sang wonderful Christmas carols every year. Oh, I just get misty-eyed every time the manger is mentioned. The only thing that will matter is whether you have believed on the Savior who has been sent to save a people from their sins. Will you trust him this morning? Will this be more than a story for you? That is the wonder of Christmas. Let's pray.